0: in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plantstock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there.
1: When you make big changes, and especially if you change a lot of things at the same time, most people feel so much better so quickly, it reframes and redefines what's possible not to prevent something bad from happening years down the road but but i feel better you know my chest pain goes away and for someone who in most cases and for someone who can't you know walk across the street without getting chest pain or make love with their spouse or play with their kids or go back to work without getting chest pain within a few weeks they can do all those things and they say things like i like eating junk food but not that much because what i gain is so much more than what i give up
0: And becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with we welcome you wherever you are on your plan strong journey and i hope that you enjoy the show hello my plan strong cousins and welcome to another episode of the plan strong podcast last week we had dr kim williams talking all about heart disease and i thought it was only fitting that this week on the heels of Dr. Kim Williams, we bring you one of the absolute godfathers of lifestyle medicine who has also shown that heart disease can not only be prevented, but in many cases reversed, and that is none other than Dr. Dean Ornish. Dr. Ornish is hes literally world-renowned. He has been the the doctor for Dr. Bill Clinton. He's made amazing inroads with Michelle and Barack Obama. He has written numerous best-selling books, and he is the founder and president of the nonprofit Preventative Medicine Research Institute, PMRI for short. And for over 40 years, he and his team of researchers have demonstrated again, and again, and again, how lifestyle medicine can reverse, treat, and prevent chronic disease. Now, from the very beginning, just like my father, Dr. Ornish was met with fierce criticism and skepticism, which would typically cause even the strongest will of physicians to reverse their course. But, because of his conviction and the overwhelming data that he has produced, the only thing reversing is your chronic diseases, including heart disease, diabetes, early-stage prostate cancer, and by association, breast cancer. And now, the evidence is showing very, very promising, even the progression of Alzheimer's. Now, you may be asking, how in the world is this possible? Well, Dr. Ornish wants you to do four things. Eat well, love more, stress less, and move more. All of which is outlined in his latest book, Undo It, How Simple Lifestyle Changes Can Reverse Most Chronic Diseases. And it was just released in paperback this week. Today, Dean and I are going to talk about the magnificent scope of his work over the last 40 years, and it is awe-inspiring. Now, before we dive in, I want to speak to any physicians, physician assistants, nurses, and nurse practitioners for just a second. For the first time, our retreat in Black Mountain, North Carolina, which is going to be March 1st to the 6th, will provide up to 20 hours of CME credits and two CEU credits for healthcare providers as part of the registration fee. Jointly provided by UNC Health Sciences at Mayheck, we are thrilled to reward professionals for all they learn at our immersive events. And you can still join us, again, those dates are March 1st through the 6th, by visiting plantstrong.com for all the details. Now, let's keep this show moving. Most importantly for today, I want to provide you all with a sense of hope. Medicine and research is changing. And as Dr. Ornish says today, what you will gain is so much more than what you will give up. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with a true legend and pioneer, Dr. Dean Ornish. Dr. Dean Ornish, I want to welcome you to the Plant Strong podcast. It is really good to see you. It's virtually the last time Dean that I believe that I saw you in person was at the Game um, at the Game Changers premiere yep. at Sundance Film Festival. A you're little a big bit part of,
1: you're you're a big part of that film.
0: Uh, listen, we 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 both had a nice part in that film. And that has really gone on to do phenomenal things, more than I ever anticipated. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but I talked to James Wilkes not too long ago. And it now has over a hundred million views, which makes it the really? the most watched documentary of of all time.
1: Amazing! That's so fantastic! Wow! Yeah. yeah. So wow. we
0: we got a lot to be proud of. Proud of with, with that wow. helping it's probably
1: uh, due to that scene that you're in. I'm sure that's why
0: you're. <laughs> going to. No. no, listen which takes me right into so i i definitely want to discuss the juggernaut body of work and research that you have done over four decades it is it has it has no comparison it's you are in a absolute league of your own it is phenomenal but before we go there i want to go back to your your childhood where you grew up you know, what inspired you to get into medicine and what drives you? What are, why, how, how is it? You're so bloody ambitious to do such good work.
1: Well, thank you. Um, I feel like maybe we should just stop now and quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's see long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, uh, where shit is a three syllable word. I don't know if I can say that. On a podcast. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, And uh, I was eating, you know, cheeseburgers and chilies and chalupas and all kinds of stuff uh, three or more times a day. But what really got me interested in doing this work was when I was at Rice University in Houston, and it was around 1972. And um, uh, I really wanted to be a doctor, and I felt like um, now that I was with a bunch of really smart kids, that it was just a matter of time before the admissions committee realized what a big mistake they'd made in letting me in. That I felt like I was stupid, that I didn't know anything. My college roommate at the time was one of the four people that year who scored a perfect score in his SATs and had a photographic memory, and never had to worry. And I really wanted to be a doctor and I knew I had to do well in organic chemistry. And the more I worried, the harder it became to study and the harder it became to study, the more I worried. And I got kind of this downward spiral where I thought, gosh, you know, I'm never going to mount anything. And then I had this spiritual vision, which was more than I could handle at the time, which is that nothing can bring lasting happiness. And so the combination of feeling like I was never going to mount anything, but even if I did, it wouldn't matter uh i thought you know i have a great idea why don't i just kill myself you know <laughs> because uh dead people look like they're happy and i was really so miserable and i couldn't even sit still you know I, I, mean, I was just constantly agitated and then a week straight went by and i literally couldn't sleep at all which is enough to make anyone crazy and so i was all set to do myself in but my um uh, saving grace was i got such a i was run down so much i got such a horrible case of uh, mononucleosis that i literally didn't have the energy to get out of bed and meanwhile my um, parents got wind that all was not well with their son and uh so they came down and saw what a wreck i was and they took me home to dallas to to recuperate and my secret plan was to get well enough and strong enough to go and kill myself again as as, uh, crazy as that's Meanwhile, my older sister, this was in the early 70s, had been in the late 60s, kind of a child of the 60s. And she had found um, that a, a, an ecumenical spiritual teacher named Swami Satyadananda really helped her. And so my parents decided when the Swami came to Dallas to give a lecture to have a cocktail party for the Swami. Now, you can only imagine in uh, Dallas in 1973, in January of 73, How weird that must have been. Uh, Even today, that would be weird in Dallas, but especially back then. And so, in walks, you know, central casting's idea of what a swami should look like, you know, long saffron robes and a long white beard and the whole bit. And he gave a satsang, a lecture in our living room. And he started off by saying, nothing can bring you lasting happiness, which I'd already figured out, except I was ready to do myself in. And he was, you know, glowing. So I'm like, what am I missing here? And he went on to say, what really turned my life around. It may sound like a new age cliche, but it really, had a profound effect on my life. It really saved my life, really, which is that while nothing can bring us lasting happiness and health, the paradox is that for the most part, we already have that, that it's our nature for in the most part to be happy and healthy and not being aware of that. We run after all these things. If only I had more whatever I think I need to be happy and healthy, more money, more power, more beauty, more sex, more accomplishment, more whatever. Then I'd be happy. Then I'd feel. Then, then I'd feel good. Uh, then I'd be peaceful. And then people would love and respect me. And I wouldn't feel so lonely. And so once I set up that view of the world, which by the way, so much of our culture reinforces—you know, the whole advertising industry is really about that. Once I set up that view of the world, uh, what the Swami taught me is that, however it turns out, that you feel badly because until you get it, you feel stressed. If somebody else gets it, then you feel really stressed, and it kind of reinforces this uh, zero-sum game, doggy dog world mentality. You know, the more you get, the less there is for me, so I better get it while I can. But even if we get it, it's very seductive in the moment. It's like, ah, oh, I got it. Now I'm happy. But invariably, it doesn't last. It's either soon followed by either now what. Um, I'm sure there have been times when you thought, gee, if I just made X amount of dollars, that would do it. You know, or if I just got... You know, this article written about this work I'm doing, that would do it. And then that happened. He's like, well, you know, maybe a little more might be better. You know, just it's either now what. You know, one patient told me years ago that he said, I can't even enjoy the view from the mountain I've climbed. I'm already looking over the next one. Mm -hmm. Or if it's not now what, it's so what, big deal. It doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning. And so another patient said that the the letdown that comes from accomplishing a goal that I thought was going to really make me happy and it didn't for very long was so great, I make sure I've got a dozen projects going at the same time. And so the cycle continues. And so what the Swami taught me is that meditation and yoga and other things like that, um, they don't bring you a sense of peace, but rather they simply help you at least temporarily to stop disturbing the peace and the health and the well-being that are really already there. And that may sound like, you know, parsing words and semantics and splitting hairs and all that, but the, the implications are actually quite profound because if it's out there, if then everybody who has something that I need to be happy and healthy has power over me. And the other most important implication is that this, the question then shifts from how can I get what I think I need to be happy and healthy to how can I stop disturbing what's already there? That's something I can do something about, not to blame myself, but to empower myself. So I thought, okay, let me give this weird stuff a try. I can always go back to plan B and kill myself. And, and, and you're so, how
0: old how old are you right now? Are you in I your- was ni-
1: 19. 19. I was just in the middle of my uh second year of medical school, of uh, college, yeah, at Rice University. And so I um transferred to the University of Texas in Austin. I went on a plant-based diet, you know, which was a big departure for me having grown up in Texas and began to meditate. I couldn't even sit still long enough to meditate, but I'd meditate walking around. And then I got glimpses of what it meant to feel peaceful. And then I could suddenly now connect the dots between what I did and how I felt. And when I began to feel peaceful, to remind myself or to remind myself that the meditation didn't bring me that sense of peace, but at least temporarily, it enabled me to stop disturbing what was already there. Mm. And then the paradox was, Rip, when I thought I had to, you know, do well in organic chemistry so I could get into medical school, so people would love and respect me, I couldn't, I was so agitated, I couldn't read a headline in a newspaper tell you, you know, a minute later what it said. But the more inwardly defined I became, the more, the less anxious I became, and the more I was able to just function at a higher level. And I ended up, you know, graduating first in my class and gave the baccalaureate. And I, I say that not to brag, but to say, I experienced both ends of that spectrum, a total Dark failure, like feeling like a worthless you know piece of whatever, to you know being able to be very successful. and so later, when I was in medical school, I began to realize that suffering can be a really powerful doorway for transforming our lives, as you know. Uh, change is hard, but if you're hurting enough, then the idea of change becomes more appealing. and one of the reasons why I've spent so much of my adult life and over the last four decades doing research is that properly done, you know with you know the best and uh collaborators the most respected collaborators published in the leading peer reviewed journals can redefine what's possible for people and so you know they'll say gosh you know this heart disease you know I, i'm hurting I, I have chest pain i can't do all the things i wanted to do and and now you're telling me that we can reverse it and you've published and all this stuff well okay that's kind of an exercise i get okay diet i get but um, vegetarian diet, really, and and uh, and meditation and loving more. Are you kidding me? Like, why would I want to do that? But okay, well, you've got these studies showing their work. Let me give this weird stuff a try. And now Medicare is paying for it. So somebody must think it's worth doing. And so they start to do that. And, and as you know, and as your dad knows from, from uh, all your extensive experience, that these biological mechanisms are so dynamic that when you make big changes, and especially if you change a lot of things at the same time, most people feel so much better so quickly. It reframes and redefines what's possible, not to prevent something bad from happening years down the road, but but I feel better. You know, my chest pain goes away. And for someone who, in most cases, and for someone who can't, you know, walk across the street without getting chest pain or make love with their spouse or play with their kids or go back to work without getting chest pain within a few weeks, they can do all those things. And they say things like, well, I like eating junk food, but not that much because, what I gain is so much more than what I give up. And that's really the key is that what you gain is more than what you give up. And quickly, you know, fear of dying or fear of a heart attack or fear of a stroke is not really sustainable. I mean, for maybe a month or two after someone's been diagnosed with a heart attack, they'll do pretty much anything that their doctor or nurse or dietitian tells them. But then it, it comes back because we all know we're going to die. And it's like, People don't want to think about that. The mortality rate is still 100. It's one per person, but we don't think about it most of the time. But if we talk about how much better we feel, that's why I like the Game Changers film so much. It's like it shows that your academic performance improves. You know, the scene about the three guys who had three to five hundred percent, you know, more frequent erections and ten to fifteen percent hard erections at night after a single plant-based meal. I mean, the the film crew went on and became plant-based. So apparently, you know, after watching that thing, that's why it's got hundred million. Views. Yeah. I mean, it's yes. it's, it's, it's truly game changing for a lot of people to realize that.
0: I want to take a short break from Dr. Dean Ornish and share with you an email that I received the other the other week. I want you to know that we receive scores of emails every day from people that have been able to turn their health around with the power of eating plant Strong and. We love reading these emails. We read every single one of them because it is so reaffirming that what we are doing at Strong is having a profound impact on reshaping people's lives. Now, this particular email is from Anita, and I wanna read it to you because I think that it epitomizes the resiliency of the human spirit and the body's innate desire to heal itself when fueled with the proper strong foods. Here you go. Anita writes, I was diagnosed with insulin resistance in the early 2000s. I was told to go on a low carb diet and to avoid eating fruit, which I love, and sugar. I was given zero guidance from the doctors on how to do this. So I picked up a popular book on low carb dieting. After six months of pushing through this diet, I lost a whopping five pounds. How frustrating. So I decided to go on a popular point-counting diet that all of my friends were on. I pretty much starved myself on this diet and still only lost five pounds. This would be the beginning of my yo-yo dieting. In 2012, I was diagnosed with hyperthyroidism and my insulin resistance was getting worse. I would try many calorie restrictive and low carb diets with little to no success. I would beg my doctors to give me a solution. Why were these diets not working? Then the keto diet started gaining popularity. I did the keto diet for six months and felt like garbage. I only lost a few pounds. My energy was low, my joints were killing me, My lipid panel was not good and my liver enzymes were on the rise and I was starting to get a fatty liver. On June of 2021, I turned 57 and had my bi-yearly checkup. I was experiencing heart palpitations and anxiety and my blood pressure was all over the place. I weighed in at 288 pounds and my A1C was elevated. I was sitting at my laptop and I searched How to Reverse Diabetes. And the Forks Over Knives documentary popped up. I sat at my kitchen table and watched the entire film and thought, well, I was willing to give up bread, fruit and grains to try and get healthy. So why not give up meat, dairy and eggs? I will be honest. I didn't do the diet as directed in the books because I didn't have them, but I followed everything on the websites and followed Rip and Jane's YouTube channels. Within a month, I lost 13 pounds. Within two months, I was down 22 pounds. By the end of September 2021, I was down 35 pounds. And by the 1st of November, at my checkup, I was down 40 pounds. My A1C went from 6.2 to 5.5. My cholesterol went from 167 to 156. Things were improving and I was not even following the diet 100%. I was eating some vegan foods like uh, vegan cheese and such, but I figured since the holiday was upon us, I would relax a bit. I didn't lose any more weight. My heart palpitations came back and I started to gain weight. On December 28th, I downloaded the 7-Day Rescue audiobook and started listening. Then my husband, my son and I watched the Rips Rescue Make Yourself Heart Attack Proof and now we are all doing the plan 100%. I'm excited to get all my numbers down this year even more now that I'm really on track. My husband has never done this 100% either and he has high blood pressure and my son wants to drop some pounds too. All I can think about is, if doing this plan haphazardly caused my blood sugar to drop my weight to drop, and my lipid panel to drop, what will happen when I'm all in 100%? We shall see, but I know it's going to be amazing. Congratulations on taking the steps to get your health back on track. We're gonna link to the resources that Anita mentioned in her email, including my seven day rescue diet book, the Rips Rescue uh, Make Yourself Heart Attack Proof episode, as well as a link to join our free plant strong community. I want you all to know you do not have to do this alone. We are here collectively to help you. Now, let's get back to Dr. Dean Ornish.
1: So when in medical school I was learning how to do uh, I went to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and I did my core surgery with Michael DeBakey, the heart surgeon who um, had essentially invented bypass surgery. And he was really a a, kind of an old school tyrant. You know, he was like, like, what year are you, son? I'd say, well, I'm in my, starting my third year. He goes, damn, it's going to be so so much harder to bust you out of here now with all these weird ideas you've got. And (laughs) he's the kind of guy that will like stick you if you didn't move your hand quickly.
0: When you say you, when you say he said you had weird ideas, So you already had, what, what were those weird ideas that he knew you already had?
1: Oh, you know, I I was teaching yoga to the other medical students and I was a vegetarian and, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. And so, uh, and, and I had already taken a, a, a year off between my second and third years of medical school to do my first pilot study of 10 men and women who had really bad heart disease. This was in 1977, 44 years ago. And I put them in a hotel for a month. It was just me and the cook. And I taught the yoga classes and did everything. And they got better. Eight of the 10 people not only felt better, but they were better. We used what was then a new test called Thallium scans to measure blood flow to the heart, uh, which is now a standard test. And eight of the 10 showed improvement in blood flow. And at that time, as you know, it was thought that heart disease, you could only slow down the rate at which people got worse. That was about the best you could do. And what we found uh, was that if you make big enough changes, you can actually reverse its progression. You know, ounce of prevention, pound of cure. But it was also my first experience of how when you're doing something disruptive, it's not always met with open arms. And you know, a lot of people say, oh, that's impossible. You know, you're know, you just a medical student. What do you know? Or how do you know the patients would have got better anyway? You didn't have a randomized control group. And I said, well, that's technically true. But how often do you see patients getting better like this? I said, well, that's beside the point. You know, But I'm just fascinated here. How could you be that
0: precocious at your second year in medical school to want to do a, a little pilot study with 10 people in a hotel room did like did you had you read about Pritikin or what gave you the no. idea that heart disease could even be reversed
1: back then? A good question. I never heard of Pritikin at the time. Um, But I went to these places called libraries and they had these things called journals and books. And I was just kind of voraciously interested that like in dogs and cats and pigs and monkeys and rabbits, you could cause them to get heart disease if you put them on a typical American diet or put them under stress or made them smoke cigarettes or made them sedentary. So, but you could reverse it if you change those things. I said, why should people be any different? I said, oh, no, people are different. So, and the other thing about being a second year medical student is that you're not fully indoctrinated. So I didn't know enough to, I didn't know what I didn't know. So, you know, fools rush in and all that. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing is when I decided not to kill myself just a few years before that, I I very intentionally said, um, I don't really know what's true. I don't know what's real. I'm going to lead a really messy life. I'm going to, um, do all kinds of, if, if it's not going to permanently damage me or hurt somebody else, I'm going to try as many different things as I can and do a lot of stupid stuff and make a lot of mistakes. And there's a lot of wisdom that comes from doing that. There's a lot of certain fearlessness that comes from that. And, but, you know, as you know, from working with people who are sick or dying that when on their deathbed, most people don't regret what they did. They regret what they didn't do. You know, it's Mm -hmm. because if you do something and it turns out to be a mistake, you learn a lot and there's a lot of wisdom that comes from making mistakes i have a lot of wisdom because i've made so many mistakes in my life but um if you don't do it you just kind of regret it and wonder like oh, what might have been you know what, what what might have happened so i just decided that i was just going to go for it you know and i i wanted to at the end of my life i wanted to be like fully spent you know and, and used up <laughs> so that's what kind of gave me the courage to do it and having then gotten a taste of how as you know from your work how meaningful it is to be able to empower people when they're hurting and help them use the experience of suffering as a doorway for transforming their lives. For me, it was depression. For someone else, it might be a heart attack. I'm sure people have told you many times, as they've told me, having a heart attack was the best thing that ever happened to me. Hasn't anyone ever told you that before? Oh, yeah. And the first time that somebody said that, I said, like, what are you, nuts? And they'd say, no, that's what it took to get my attention to begin making these changes that have improved, but the quality of my life is so much better that I never would have done it otherwise. And by the way, just to digress for a moment, so... I got a call about four years ago from Dr. DeBakey. I hadn't talked to him in decades. Um, He said, hey, Dean, this is Mike DeBakey. And he had a very distinctive uh, Louisiana accent. And I said, "Uh, to what do I, I knew it was him just because I I, I recognized that accent. He said, um, I said, to what do I have this honor? He said, well, you know, those weird ideas I used to give you such a hard time about when you were my medical student. I said, oh, yeah, I remember really well. He goes, that's what's kept me alive all these years. And I just wanted you to know. I'm 99 years old. I'll be dying soon. And I just wanted you to know my wife got interested in what you're doing. And, and I just wanted you to know before I died, I thought like, wow, I should live long enough. You just never know.
0: <laughs> that is so awesome. Good for Again, good for him for picking up the phone and calling you and letting
1: you know that. Yeah. It meant a lot to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I, I'd love to like, if you're cool with it, chronologically kind of go through some of your research your randomized yeah. control studies, your pilot studies, like the first one that you, that I've been able to see is in 1978, where that pilot study, we were able to show that in 30 days, you could basically reverse and improve the blood flow to the heart.
1: Right. Um, I mean, 1978, that was so long ago. Yeah. Well, um, you know, at that time, not only was it thought impossible to reverse heart disease, but it was thought that the blockage in the arteries was really the only mechanism that kept the heart from getting enough blood. And the idea, and we know that builds up over decades. So the idea that you could reverse it over any period of time was not crazy, but especially in, in a month, like how could that be? There's no mechanism to explain that. And we showed that it was true, but we didn't really know why it was true. And later, other cardiologists, other people like Attilio Masri and others show that the arteries are not like lead pipes. They're actually lined with smooth muscle, as you know, that can constrict or dilate. The collateral blood vessels, the kind of built-in bypasses that your body grows around blocked arteries are smaller in diameter. They can get clogged up really easily with, you know, fat and microthrombi and so on. So when you eat healthier, that network is able to deliver more blood to your heart. Uh, uh, you know, there are other things that affect the uh, the vasomotor tone and preload and afterload all this kind of stuff and so uh, over time it became clear that the blockages are just one of many mechanisms that affect blood flow to the heart and they're not they may not even be the most important mm-hmm. and yet and i think that's one of the reasons why there are now eight randomized trials uh, actually more than eight but at least eight that have, they all show the same thing that in stable men and women who've got stable heart disease that they don't work they don't prolong life they don't prevent heart attacks they don't even reduce angina uh, and, and, and and bypass surgery only does so in the most, you know, just a few percentage of people who are the most sick. Uh, and we spend $100 billion a year on these two operations that are dangerous, invasive, expensive, and largely ineffective because they're focusing on the the, the blockages in the arteries. And yet the real bottom line isn't blockages is how much blood your heart is getting. So I went back to school, finished my MD, then did a randomized trial before starting uh, my residency in Boston. Um, to see what would happen if we had a randomized control group. And with this time, we put people in a, in a resort in the middle of nowhere uh, just so we could have more control over what they were eating. And we found in the first study, sometimes people were going down to the bar and having pepperoni pizza and drinks in the middle of the night. And uh, in just 24 days, which we scientifically picked because they said we could use it for free for 24 days, um, we found that there was the, the, heart, the ability of the heart to pump blood as a measure of the underlying heart disease improved. Uh, and it was statistically significant after just 24 days. And we published that compared to the randomized control group, which actually got worse during that time. Again, it shows how dynamic these biological mechanisms are for better and for worse. And so we published that in the Journal of the American Medical Association and um, ended up going up to Boston to Harvard and Mass General to do my uh, fellowship and residency, moved to San Francisco in 1984 and began the most definitive study called the Lifestyle Heart Trial, which um, used the state of the art. I mean, ironically, we're using these high-tech expensive state of the art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost interventions are. And so and, and I, I don't know I don't know about you, but one of the issues I continue to struggle with and, and, and the biggest obstacle I find in doing this work is people think, oh, diet and lifestyle, that's kind of boring. How powerful could that be? You know, it's got to be a new drug, a new laser, something really high-tech and expensive to be powerful. And I think our unique contribution has been to use these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very low-tech and low-cost and often ancient interventions can be. So we use quantitative arteriography to measure very accurate reproducibly the amount of blockages in the arteries. We actually flew our patients to Texas, where they had the best cardiac PET scanner in the world at the time, to measure blood flow uh, most accurately. Uh, we looked at cardiac events and so on. And we found that after one year, uh, the experimental group who made these lifestyle changes showed some reversal. Their arteries got less clogged, which had never been shown in a control study before, whereas they got more clogged uh, in the uh, in the randomized control group. And then we, uh, we published that in The Lancet, the leading international peer-reviewed medical journal. And then we're using those. I mean, it's hard to get funding to do studies that have never been done before. And everything we've done has never been done before because… Yeah. They think, why should we waste our money? Everybody knows it's impossible. And they're like, well, let's find out. You know, they say, well, why should we waste our money? We know it can't be done. And it's a catch-22. Without the money, you can't show it works. And they don't think it's it works. They don't want to fund it. So we just took this approach saying, look, let's just, if we're doing good work, somehow the universe will provide. And I know that sounds so California flaky, but it's it's the way I've always lived my life. And the money always seems to come in somehow, you know, just when we most need it. And so then, but based on the one-year findings, we were then able to get a a large grant from the National Institutes of Health to extend the study for four more years. And we found even more reversal after five years and after one year, whereas the control group who were doing just what their doctors had told them showed even worsening more blockages after five years and after one year. And we also found a 400% improvement in blood flow to the heart uh, after five years when compared to the randomized control group. And there were two, there were, um, we, we, uh, there were, uh, 70% fewer heart attacks, strokes, bypasses, angioplasties and stents in the group that made these changes compared to those who didn't. So then, um, we began, I, I began thinking, you know, well, this is going to change medical practice kind of kind of in a naive way. And, and, uh, to some degree it did, but not nearly what I thought it would be. And then I realized as you know, that, uh, you know, it's like follow the money, you know, that, um, that. You know, we get trained to use drugs and surgery as doctors, we get reimbursed to use drugs and surgery. So not surprisingly, that's what we use. You know, it's like that old saying from Abraham Maslow, the only tool you have is a hammer, you see everything is a nail. So I thought, well, if we could, we went insurance company by insurance company, it's very hard to get insurance companies to do something entrepreneurial or innovative. That's People don't go into that world for that reason. And but mutual, mutual of Omaha was the first major insurance company to do this. This was in 1986, mm. um, and it uh, made the front page of the New York Times. And then a few others did. But um, and then Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield began not only covering it in 26 sites, but actually providing. I mean, covering it nationwide, but providing it in 26 sites. And they found they cut their overall healthcare costs in half in the first year, and by fourfold. Um, in the uh, subgroup of people they'd spend at least twenty five thousand dollars on, and then Hamish uh, of Omaha found that they almost seventy, almost eighty percent of the people who were told they needed a stent or bypass could choose our lifestyle program as a direct alternative, and they cut and they um, saved almost thirty thousand dollars per patient in the first year. And it's really important to show cost savings in the first year. Because the insurance companies know that a third of people change jobs and change insurance companies every year. And they say if it's going to take longer than a year, why should we spend our money for some future benefit that someone else is going to get? So, but I knew that it's, you know, we could spend the rest of our lives going insurance company by insurance company. So I thought, well, if Medicare would cover it, then that would be a real game changer, no pun intended. And um, if, if Medicare covers it, then most of the other insurance companies would. So um, I, I met with them and they basically, weren't interested in doing it, you know, and they said, Oh, no one will do it. And I brought with me the chief medical officer of, um, of, what
0: year uh, are we in? What year are we in now?
1: This was in 19. Uh, let me think about this. Because, uh, I
0: know maybe it took that long, but 2010, they announced so, coverage of their Ornish
1: program. Yeah. This was 1994. Cause it took 16 years to get this done. I, wow. I, uh, I mean, wow. my persistence is my best <laughs> and my worst quality. Let's part that way. And so they said, you know, uh, you know we, if we pay for this, everybody's got a crystal ball and a pyramid is going to want to have Medicare coverage. And I brought with me the chief medical officer of Mutual of Omaha. He said, look, my name is Ken McDonough. I'm the senior VP and chief medical officer of Mutual of Omaha. We're not a radical company. We're Mutual of Omaha, for Christ's sake. And, and we cover this because it's got years of randomized yeah. controlled trial data showing it's safe and effective and sat down. They said, well, nobody's going to do this. And I brought with me... A guy named Rick Collins, who was the chief of cardiology at the first hospital we trained, which also happened to be in Omaha, he said, look, I I make my living doing stents and angioplasties, and 90% of the people I would have operated on were able to choose this program as a safe alternative, and that was it. And they still wouldn't do it. So that night, it just happened that I was having dinner with Bill Clinton, uh, and because I've been working with him since 1993. Yeah. Um, he said, how was your day? And I said, it really was challenging. He said, well, maybe I can help. I said, well, maybe you can. You're the president of the United States. You know, you're the <laughs> head of the executive branch. And so I had some stuff with me and it was just the two of us in the White House. I just gave it to him. I didn't have to go through staff or anything. And I thought, well, he'll just make a call and that'll be it. 16 years later, we got Medicare coverage and we had both <laughs> he was president, we had Newt Gingrich, who was Speaker of the House, who hated each other. And, you know, uh, it was, must have been like 20 members of the Senate and over 50 members of the House who all across the political spectrum all came together, but it still took 16 years, but they did it. And that was a real breakthrough because again, if you change, if Medicare covers it, most of the other people do, which has been happening. Now, the other breakthrough is that just a few weeks ago, Medicare agreed to cover our program when offered through Zoom at the same rate as when it's done uh, in the bricks and mortar world. So, uh, now we can reach people who don't live within driving distance of a hospital or a clinic that they can be in rural areas we can help reduce health disparities and health inequities and so on that's anyway so we went on, we went on from there to do um, we found that you know high blood pressure high cholesterol type 2 diabetes because so many of these people have the same conditions and um, I'll come back to this but that's really the idea of the unifying theory, but let me just make myself a note to come back to that. Anyway, and then we did a study um, with um, the chair of urology at Memorial Sun Kettering Cancer Center, Bill Fair at the time, and uh, uh, Peter Carroll, the chair at UCSF at the time, to see if these same lifestyle changes could affect the progression of men with early stage prostate cancer. And we found that they did. Um, uh, You know, it was a randomized controlled trial, and we were able to stop or reverse the progression of early stage prostate cancer in the people who made these changes, same changes, Uh, whereas they got worse in the control group. And then we did a study with Craig Venter, try to get us some sense of what are some of the mechanisms to help explain these findings. And Craig was the first to decode the human genome, as you know. And we found that over 500 genes were changed in just three months, turning on the good genes, turning off the bad genes. Um, In fact, when Bill Clinton's bypasses clogged up 14 years ago, um, his cardiologist held a press conference and said, oh, it was all in his genes, his diet and lifestyle had nothing to do with it. And having worked with him for so many years, I knew it had everything to do with it. So I, I sent him a note and I said, you know, the friends I value the most are the ones who tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. And you need to know it's not all in your genes. In fact, we've shown you can actually change the expression of your genes. And, and if it were all in your genes, you'd be a victim and you're, you're not a victim. You're one of the most powerful guys on the planet. So he began doing this. He's now been doing it for 14 years. I think he talked to your dad too, which was great. And um and he's, he's talked about this publicly. His disease, heart disease is getting better. And I think whatever you're... Politics. When a former president, who is known for you know running to McDonald's, makes these changes, it really can inspire lots and lots of other people. Anyway, I just want to know, like, so
0: you know, you, you, you've done all these studies, research showing that you can reverse heart disease, and then what was the impetus for you to try and show that you could do something with prostate cancer?
1: Well, it's a good question. Um, I began to realize that. Um, the same biological mechanisms that affect heart disease affect so many other conditions. And, and let, let me just digress a moment and talk about this unifying theory that I wrote about in the Undo it book, which, which just now came out in paperback. And that is, over these four decades of studies, I think like, it wasn't like there was one set of diet and lifestyle changes for reversing heart disease or different for diabetes or prostate cancer or changing your telomeres or your gene expression and perhaps even Alzheimer's disease. It was the same for all of these. And I thought, why is that? And then it became like kind of a blinding flash of the obvious. Like I was trained, like all doctors, to view all these as being different diseases, different diagnoses, and different treatments. But it became clear to me that they're really not so different. They have a lot more in common. They're in many ways the same disease manifesting and masquerading in different forms because mm-hmm. they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms. Chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome, and telomeres, and gene expression, and angiogenesis, and overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system and immune function and so on. And each of these in turn is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much we exercise, and how much love and support we have. And the more diseases we study, the more evidence we find of that. So prostate cancer, again, is is affected by these same mechanisms. In fact, when we found that we could affect over 500 genes, we found that we were downloading what are called the RAS oncogenes that promote prostate cancer, breast cancer, and colon cancer were just switched off. So I thought, okay. And, and prostate cancer is a really interesting disease to study for a number of reasons. One of which is that a certain number of men uh, choose to do what's called watchful waiting or now called active surveillance, where they, they know they have cancer, but they're not having it treated. So we, we, we only recruited people who were doing that. So then we could randomly divide them into two groups and have one group who we knew had prostate cancer, but wasn't being treated with chemo or surgery or radiation. So we could then compare them and see what are the effects of lifestyle changes alone without being confounded with the other usual kinds of interventions. But what's true for prostate cancer will likely be true for breast cancer as well. And so we found that we could actually stop or reverse its progression. Uh, which was exciting, and you know, right now, what happens is most guys, if you get long, if you live long enough, are going to get prostate cancer, but you're more likely to die with it than from it. And yet, most guys get scared to death. You know, they have a biopsy. They, oh, you got to get it out now before it spreads, and and they do. And most of the time, it turns out there are now two large-scale studies, ten-year studies in the New England Journal of Medicine, that only about one out of forty-nine or fifty men actually lives longer because they have surgery or radiation or chemo. The other forty-nine often get maimed in the most personal ways. They're often either impotent. They can't have sex or incontinent. They're wearing a diaper for no real benefit at huge economic and huge personal costs. But if the only choice you have is between doing nothing and doing something, most guys, you know, like we want to do something, you know, and now we have the third alternative, which is to um, go to your doctor and make sure you don't have the most aggressive form of prostate cancer. And if you don't, then ask your doctor to go, go on this lifestyle program and then monitor yourself You know, every few months with ultrasounds and other things and repeat biopsies every few years or so and, and, uh, and see if you can avoid having those interventions, which is you know, uh, a, a more a, 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 an aggressive, non-surgical, non-pharmacologic intervention, if you want to put it so in. We,
0: were you actually able to show, because I know you're able to show, bringing down the PSA level,
1: were you able to show a, a decrease in the potential size of the cancer? We didn't measure the size of the cancer, but we measured the tumor activity using a test called uh, um, uh, that. Uh, uh, what was the guy's name? Did it anyway? It's it's a um, it's a it's a it's a special test that enables us to look at the activity of the tumor, and we found that. And also, none of the experimental group patients needed surgery or radiation or chemo in the first year, but six of the control group patients did. Mm-hmm. And when we added the serum, the blood of these patients, to a standard line of prostate tumor cells growing in tissue culture in uh, Bill Aronson's lab at UCLA, 70% of the tumor was inhibited versus only 9% in the control group. Now think about that. These are people who went on a plant-based diet and made these other changes, drew their blood, added it to a tissue culture of prostate tumor cells growing, and it inhibited the growth 70% versus only 9% in the uh, control group. And so uh, taken as a whole, It's for the first, and as far as I know, still the only randomized trial showing that these lifestyle changes can slow, stop, and often even reverse its progression, which is really exciting. Incredible. Then we did a study with Elizabeth Blackburn, who got the Nobel Prize for discovering telomeres, which, as you know, are the ends of our chromosomes that regulate uh, aging, cellular aging. They're like the plastic tips on the end of a shoelace to keep your shoelace from unraveling. They keep our DNA from unraveling. And as the DNA replicates over time, the telomeres get shorter. And as telomeres get shorter, our lives get shorter. And the risk of premature death from all these different conditions goes up proportionally. And so... Um, she had done studies with Alyssa Apple, showing that, you know, women under chronic stress had shorter telomeres or people who smoked it or even people who ate junk food or who were sedentary. So I said, you know, most things in biology go both directions. If bad things make your telomeres shorter, maybe good things make them longer. We found, sure enough, they got 10% longer. This was the first study showing that any intervention could actually lengthen telomeres. And we would publish this in the Lancet. Uh, the Lancet editor's uh, Called it the first study showing that lifestyle changes may reverse aging at a cellular level, which I thought was really exciting. Wow. Wow. So the, so the unifying theory is to say, look, um, you don't need one set of diet and lifestyle programs for this and for that. You know, personalized medicine, it's fine. But you see, these same lifestyle changes that can affect so many different chronic diseases because they all share the same mechanisms, which in turn are directly influenced by the lifestyle choices that we make each day. And it helps explain why. You know, Colin Campbell found that you know in the China study that they had such low rates of all these chronic diseases until they started to eat like us and live like us and all too often die like us. Or why we find what we call comorbidities. I'm sure when you work with people with heart disease, they often have type two diabetes or high blood pressure or high cholesterol or obesity, but because it's the same disease just kind of manifesting in different ways. And why when you put them on the same lifestyle changes, all these different conditions often get better. And people who are told that you know, these are drugs you have to take for the rest of your life to lower your cholesterol, blood pressure, blood sugar. That, under their doctor's supervision, they can often reduce them or get off them altogether. Wow!
0: So, Dean, th- that was quite a litany right there. So, between, <laughs> between between you know, showing reversing heart disease, prostate cancer, changing gene expression, uh, you know, lengthening the the tel- the telomeres. What has you excited right now?
1: Oh, well, spending more time with my friends and family has been really great. Not having to travel so much during COVID has been wonderful. But um what I'm most excited about professionally is we're in the midst of doing the first randomized trial to see if we can uh stop or reverse the progression of men and women who have early Alzheimer's disease. And I have a personal interest because my mom and all of her siblings died of Alzheimer's. She was totally brilliant. Mm-hmm. And just watching her beautiful mind decay was so tragic. Um, And I think we're at a place with and I have one of the ApoE4 genes for it. But I think we're in a place with Alzheimer's very reminiscent of where we were with heart disease 40 some odd years ago. In other words, the same biological, what's good for your heart is good for your brain and vice versa. What's bad for your heart is bad for your brain. The same biological mechanisms that affect heart disease affect Alzheimer's. And the less intensive interventions of Alzheimer's, uh, the, uh, the, the what's called the finger study, the mind study, can slow the rate at which they get worse because they progress into dementia, just like back then, the less intensive, like American Heart Association diet, slowed the rate at which your arteries got clogged, but wasn't enough to stop or reverse it, you know, ounce of prevention, pound of cure, if you will. Uh, my hypothesis is that a more intensive intervention might stop or reverse it. And unlike heart disease, where there are, all, there are still other treatments that have some benefit, you know, drugs and surgery and so on, nothing really can stop the progression of early-stage Alzheimer's. You know, there was a drug that was approved this year called aducanamab. It was the first drug in 20 years that has been approved for treating Alzheimer's. They spent billions and billions of dollars on these drugs, and they've all failed. This drug should never have been approved. In fact, three of the FDA commissioners resigned in protest because it's $56,000 per dose, only, it only slows the rate of getting worse a little bit, and a third of people get bleeding into their brain and brain swelling and have to stop taking it. But it just shows you how desperate people are for some sense of hope. Because right now, if you get diagnosed, they say, they'd say, Rip, I'm sorry, you've got Alzheimer's. The best we can do is slow it down a little bit, get your affairs in order, and by the way, we're going to take away your driver's license, so your your world starts to shrink even more. And it's just this unfathomable dark place, you know, which I'm very familiar with, having been so suicidally depressed uh, years ago, of uh, like of hopelessness, you know. And the the worst thing about really being depressed, like I was when I was 19, uh, the hallmark of real depression is the sense of helplessness and hopelessness that comes when you take someone's hope away. And, um, and and you're told that nothing, it's only going to get worse. And that can be self-fulfilling in a, in, a, in a way because it's like your brain just starts to shut down almost as an adaptive response to such horrible news. So I thought, you know, if, and it's still a big if, but if we could show that we could stop or reverse its progression, that would be monumental because then we could, you know, empower people and give people a sense of hope which can also be self-fulfilling in a good way which is again why i spend so much of my time doing these studies which are really hard so i'm cautiously optimistic that we might be able to show that and if anyone is listening to this we're still recruiting people Uh, we provide 21 meals a week for you and your spouse or caregiver for 40 weeks Uh, we do all the testing it's just cognitive function testing and so on Mm -hmm. and we had to start doing it so just go to ornish.com my name.com Um, And there's information on there how to enroll in the study. And now we can reach people and have them in the study pretty much wherever they live, because, you know, we were meeting with people in person as we had with the Medicare heart disease patients. But then when COVID hit, we had to stop doing that because... Um, you know, they're such a vulnerable population. So I would never have done this. I had thought incorrectly, as it turned out, that this was such a high-touch intervention. It just wouldn't work as well if you did it by Zoom. But I was wrong. It turns out it worked just as well, or wow. almost as well. So now we're collaborating with the heads of neurology at Harvard with Rudy Tanzi and Stephen Arnold and Jonathan Rosen and Doreen Renz, as well as at um, University of California, San Diego, and Jonathan Arts and others at, at Renown and probably the people at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, uh neurology to to see where we're we're, we're recruiting patients. They're provide and test the patients locally, like in Boston, but we'll do the intervention from here via Zoom and we drop ship the food to them. So um we can now reach people wherever they live with and I think it's going to be the latest example of how these, you know, to radically simplify, you know, the 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 Undo It book starts with one of my favorite quotes from Albert Einstein, which is that if you If you can't make it simple, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And to try to reduce all this complexity down to you know eat well, move more, stress less, love more, you know, that's it. And even with COVID, you know, with the new Omicron variant that's just coming out, everybody's so justifiably concerned about because you know the vaccinations only protect you about 40%. Even get a booster, it's only about 78%. So people are looking for new ways of trying to strengthen their immune system, even if they everybody should get vaccinated and wear masks and so on. But even if you do that you're not, you know, there's only going to be a lot of breakthrough cases. And there was a study that came out about a month ago in the British Medical Journal where they looked at frontline COVID-19 healthcare workers in six countries who are exposed to COVID every day. And they found those on a plant-based diet were 73% less likely to get moderate to severe COVID. Mm -hmm. Those on a pescatarian diet were 59% less likely. Those on an Atkins, paleo, keto diet were actually 400% more likely you know, So it just goes to, and then Walter Willett at Harvard looked at 600,000 doctors and nurses and found that they were 42% less likely to get moderate to severe COVID if they were on a plant-based diet. So again, the more we look, the more evidence we have of how these simple changes can make such a powerful difference, as, as you well know.
0: Well, so that, that leads me to my next question, is that I, the latest data that I have, Dean, is that annually we're now spending like $3.6 trillion on healthcare. Um, and that's like 10, almost $11,000 per person in America. Um, and that less than 3% of that budget
1: or, or of that, that cost is prevention. I'm surprised it's that high. Actually, 86% of that, it's actually up to 3.8 trillion now. I'm mean, oh, wow. there, uh, adds up. Uh, 86% of that is for treating chronic diseases, which, as you know, are largely preventable and even often reversible through changing lifestyle. My approach, just like yours is, is to treat the cause. And when we can treat the cause, which are to a much larger degree than we had once realized these lifestyle choices we make each day, that our bodies often have this remarkable capacity to begin healing and much more quickly than we had once thought. But it's not only medically effective, it's cost effective. As I mentioned, you know, we did a study with Mark Blue Cross Blue Shield, where they was not only covering, but also providing our program in West Virginia, Nebraska, and Pennsylvania. It's 26 different sites there, three of the more challenging parts of the country. And uh, they cut their costs in half in the first year. And by fourfold, when they looked at the people, they'd spend at least $25,000 on in the prior year. So if we really want to reduce costs, and these are really not healthcare costs, they're mostly sick care costs, and we want to reduce costs and make better care available to more people at lower cost, you know, the more democratic agenda or empowering the individual and freedom of speech and freedom of choice and, and the personal responsibility more the Republican side, these really kind of comes together. We have to work with people on the real basic cause, which are these lifestyle choices. And one of the reasons why I spent 16 years of my life to work to try to ultimately get Medicare to cover this, which they did, is that, um, if you change reimbursement, you change medical practice and even medical education. You know, I'm on the um, uh, yeah. nutrition working group of the American College of Cardiology. We published a paper last year in the leading uh, uh, peer-reviewed cardiology journal, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, that the average doctor gets four hours of nutrition training a year. Yeah. The average cardiology fellow in four years of training gets none, you know. But now that we're changing reimbursement, that's slowly beginning to change. And, and your work and your dad's work and other people are really um, helping to lead the way in doing that. Mm.
0: Well, so over your last 40 years, I want to know, what would you say, and it sounds like maybe Medicare, but I. what's your biggest victory and what's your biggest frustration?
1: <laughs> um, I think getting Medicare, I don't know. They're all kind of important. If, if we can, Huge. If, you know, Medicare was probably the, 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 will have the most impact just because for all the reasons we've been talking about. And now that Medicare is paying for it, most of the other insurance companies are. And then we can make it, like you, having seen what a powerful difference these changes can make, I didn't want this just to be concierge medicine. I wanted it to be available to as many people as possible. Now it is, which is great. Uh, If we can show, and it's still an if, but it's not as big an if as it was when we started, that we can stop, reverse the progression of early-stage Alzheimer's, that'll be probably the, the biggest accomplishment because nothing else works. And when you lose your memories, you lose everything. So, um, and I think it will, and again, if we can reverse it, then we can prevent it and or at least help prevent it. And a lot of, there's some new tests coming out, the biomarkers that can like measure amyloid in your blood, you know, 20 years before it becomes clinically apparent. But a lot of people say, why would I want to know if I'm at risk for getting such a horrible disease, if I can't do do, anything, do anything about it, it's just going to make me crazy. But if we can show you can do something about it, then it'll probably require less intensive changes to help prevent it than it does to stop or reverse it after the fact. What about um, Sanjay Gupta? Because didn't he just come out with a book all about, uh, I think, uh, Alzheimer's and stuff? Yeah I, mean- yeah, I wrote him a quote for that book. He actually came and uh, filmed our study. So when it's finished, he may do something on that. And Luis Sajoyos, who, as you know, did the Game Changers, yeah. has been filming the Alzheimer's patients all the way through. So uh, we'll be able to um, have more than just a journal article. We can actually share people and show the struggles they go through and you know how they can overcome them and actually seeing them to the year that they're getting better. What's your uh,
0: what's your time frame on this study?
1: I don't know. It just depends on how now that we're recruiting from all these different sites, we're hoping that we can get the rest of the patients a lot more quickly than it's taken up us until now. And and so we're cautiously optimistic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, deservedly so. Um, I was talking to my parents last night. They told me to give you a big
1: hello. And, and I, back to them, send them, please send them my love.
0: I, I know that um the um the U.S. News and World Report is coming out with their, you know, number one uh, diets pretty soon. Did you guys make it again for the 11th straight year?
1: They uh, they've been rating diets since 2011, and they uh, it's uh, they just announced that uh, for 2022, the number one heart healthy diet is is our diet, which is great, from a panel of experts there for the 11th year since 2011. So we appreciate that.
0: That's fantastic. Tell me, how many Ornish certified locations are there? Do you have any idea?
1: I really don't. Uh, yep. We partner with Sharecare, and they're um, they've been training hospitals and clinics and physician groups. But now that we can do it virtually, we can reach anyone anywhere, and that'll just you know exponentially expand the number of people we can help. And yep, that's exactly. really that's you know just like you, having seen what a powerful difference these changes can make, and now have the reimbursement to make it sustainable. Uh, it's, it's 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 you know it's an exciting time.
0: Yeah. Well, for. Everybody that's out there, I highly encourage you to go to Ornish.com.
1: It's a beautiful, gorgeous website. It is so well done. My, uh, By the way, my wife, Ann, who's collaborated with me for 20 some odd years, um, is brilliant and has a, one of her superpowers is making everything around her beautiful. And she's completely designed the website and empower our learning management system. She doesn't get nearly enough credit, um, but that's all really her.
0: Well, it it is really, it's... Uh, I am very envious. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah. Tell me this, Dean, you know, what did you have for breakfast and lunch? Have you had lunch yet? And please let us know what you ate. I'm
1: actually having lunch with uh, Louis Sihoyos in a few minutes. Um, so we're really? going to go down to a restaurant that's uh, called avatar, no pun intended uh, since James Cameron, who uh, did, did avatar did the game changers and, um, but for breakfast, I had a bowl of uh, whole grain cereal and some blueberries and some uh, sugar-free soy milk. And, uh, and that was it. Yeah, it was nice. great.
0: Did you hear uh, that uh, Avatar 2 is coming out in December of 2022, so in a year? Yeah. And then 3 is coming out two years after that, then 4, and then 5. And Avatar 2 is like almost all underwater. And these actors and actresses had to learn to hold their breath for like minutes at a time.
1: Yeah. Well, I I know that because uh, as you know, Jim Cameron went <laughs> on a vegan diet um, because he's an explorer as well as a filmmaker. And when he learned that more global warming is caused by livestock consumption than all forms of transportation combined, he, uh, he went on this for environmental reasons and he has so much energy. He's in his sixties like I am, you know, he's actually making avatars two, three and four at the same time in New Zealand. Yeah. They'll be released a year apart, but they're actually doing them all at the same time, and it just goes to show you how you know how much energy doing something like this can do. And By the way, my younger my son, uh, who's twenty one, is a as an accomplished musician, and one of his favorite indie bands is called Wolfpack, uh, V U L F P E C K, and they gave a concert a couple of years ago at the Greek Theater at University of California Berkeley, where I you know near where I live, and they had fifteen thousand you know mostly kids in their twenties, and uh, the front man of the band is vegan. And uh, he said, you know, um, we went backstage to say hi to him. He said, you know, um, in the middle of my concerts, I usually talk about why I'm on a vegan diet, but, and I talk about your work and other people's work, but since you're here, why don't you come out in the middle of the concert? <laughs> I said, what? So he said, okay. So for like 15 minutes, I was actually cool to my son. It didn't last much longer than that. But when I went out there, I didn't talk about, you know, reversing heart disease and diabetes and prostate cancer and Alzheimer's. These are kids in their 20s. I said, you know, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed by what's happening in the world. Like What can I do as one person about global warming, about, you know, feeding the hungry, about the deforestation in the Amazon, about, you know, all these animals that are, you know, kept in such horrible conditions. What can I do? Well, you know, something as primal as what you put in your mouth every day can affect all those things. You know, more global warming is caused by livestock consumption than all forms of transportation. It takes fourteen times more resources to make a pound of meat-based protein than plant-based protein. If enough people ate a plant-based diet, no one need to go hungry. You know, one out of five kids in the Bay Area goes to bed hungry every night. It's pitiful. Uh, the deforestation in the Amazon is largely to clear cut to make room to graze cattle for for meat. You know, and so on. There's seven to eleven billion animals. In, get uh, held under the most horrible conditions and killed just to provide food that we don't really need to do. Mm. You know, there was like this roar of the crowd. And <laughs> I said, oh, this is why people like to be rock stars. You know, it's amazing energy like that. But again, I think that anytime we can imbue the choices that we make with meaning. When I was so depressed when I was 19, I could take all the meaning out of life, you know, and, and that's why I got so depressed. But I later learned that just choosing not to do certain things, like not to eat certain foods, So that it frees up resources to do all these wonderful things to help what's good for you is good for the planet. You know, what's personally sustainable is globally sustainable. It can imbue those choices with meaning. And therefore, that itself also helps to make them sustainable. That's why I think that all religions and spiritual paths have dietary guidelines, even though they're often in conflict with each other. Just whatever the intrinsic benefit is, just the act of choosing, I'm not going to eat certain foods, imbues those choices with meaning. And I think meaning is something that we're all looking for more of.
0: Wow. Um, Dean, beautiful. Thank you. Um, I just got to say that you are, you are the, and I hope you don't mind me using this term, but you're the godfather of lifestyle medicine, treatment, <laughs> treatment, prevention, reversal. And this is the direction that we got to get this country moving in. And you have done such an amazing job being that just guiding light for. So many people, including myself, my father, and, uh, you know, Colin Campbell, John McDougal. You know, we're all indebted to your to your ferocious, um, ambitious research. And you are all over the map. It is the most beautiful thing. Way to go. Uh-oh.
1: You've made my day, my dear friend. Thank you. And uh, right back at you. And um, I look forward to the next time we can be together in person. Yeah. Hopefully, you don't have to wait for another film to get made. <laughs> Thank
0: you so much for listening today. For a list of the resources on today's episode, visit the episode page at plantstrongpodcast.com and we'll be sure to link to Dr. Ornish's new book, Undo It, as well as information on his latest research studies at PMRI. Thanks again for following and sharing and subscribing and man, plants are the best. Thank you. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kortowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn, Jr. and Ann Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.